Hello. Welcome to the Bore You to Sleep podcast. The podcast that will hopefully help you get to sleep. I am going to read an open source book, one that is not particularly interesting, but one that is hopefully boring enough to get you to sleep. Tonight's reading comes from A Traveller at 40. It's a lovely story about an American gentleman's journey around Europe during the time where you needed to take a boat instead of a plane. The book was published in 1913 and written by Theodore Dreeser. My name is Teddy and I aim to help people everywhere get a good night's rest. Sleep is so important and my mission is to help you get the rest that you need. The podcast is designed to play in the background while you slowly fall asleep. Special thank you to everyone who listens to and supports the podcast. Thank you to Jenna for your lovely review on Facebook. I'm glad the podcast is helping. Thank you to Podbean listeners Kimball 81 and Floof for your reviews recently as they are fantastic. Last but not least, a massive thank you to new anchor sponsor Claudia. Becoming a sponsor means a great deal to me and I thank you. If you haven't been able to and you would like, you can also say hello at boytosleep.com where you can support the podcast also. I am also on Twitter and Instagram at boytosleep. You can find me on Facebook also by searching Boy to Sleep Podcast. A fantastic way to say thank you is to leave a review or share the podcast with a friend. These are fantastic ways for me to help others and the greatest compliment I can receive. In the meantime, lie back, relax and enjoy the readings. A Traveller at 40 Chapter 1 Barfleur takes me in hand. I have just turned 40. I have seen a little something of life. I have been a newspaper man, editor, magazine contributor, author, and, before these things, several odd kinds of clerk before I found out what I could do. Eleven years ago, I wrote my first novel, which was issued by a New York publisher and suppressed by him. Heaven knows why. For the same year, they suppressed my book because of its alleged immoral tendencies. They published Zola's Fecundity and an Englishwoman's Love Letters. I fancy now after eleven years of wonder, that it was not so much the supposed immorality as the book's straightforward, plain-spoken discussion of American life in general. We were not used then in America to calling a spade a spade, particularly in books. We had great admiration for Tolstoy, 
and Flaubert and Balzac, at a distance, some of us, and it was quite an honour to have handsome sets of these men on our shelves. But mostly, we had been schooled in the literature of Dickens, Thackeray, George Eliot, Charles Lamb, and the refined company of English sentimental realists who told us something about life, but not everything. No doubt all of these great men knew how shabby a thing this world was, how full of lies, make-believe, seeming and false pretense it all is. But they had agreed among themselves, or with the public, or with sentiment generally, not to talk about that too much. Books were always to be built out of facts concerning our better natures. We were always to be seen as we wish to be seen. These were villains to be sure. Liars, dogs, thieves, scoundrels. But they were strange creatures hiding away in the dark. Unconventional places and scarcely seen save at night and peradventure. Whereas we, all clean, bright, honest, well-meaning people, were living in nice homes, going our way honestly and truthfully, going to church, raising our children, believing in a father, a son, and a holy ghost, and never doing anything wrong at any safe time, as these miserable liars, dogs, thieves, etc., might suddenly appear and make us. Our books largely showed us as heroes. If anything happened to our daughters, it was not their fault, but the fault of these miserable villains. Most of us were without original sin. The business of our books, our church, our laws, our jails, was to keep us so. I am sure that it never occurred to many of us that there was something really improving in a plain, straightforward understanding of life. For myself, I accept now no creeds. I do not know what truth is, what beauty is, what love is, what hope is. I do not believe anyone absolutely, and I do not doubt anyone absolutely. I think people are both evil and well-intentioned. While I was opening my mail one morning, I encountered a now memorable note which was addressed to me at my apartment. It was from an old literary friend of mine in England who expressed himself as anxious to see me immediately. I have always liked him. 
I like him because he strikes me as amusingly English, decidedly literary and artistic in his point of view, a man with a wide wisdom, discriminating taste, rare selection. He wears a monocle in his right eye, Allah Chamberlain, and I like him for that. I like people who take themselves with a grand air, whether they like me or not, particularly if the grand air is backed up by a real personality. In this case, it is. Next morning, Barfleur took his breakfast with me. It was a most interesting affair. He was late, very. He stalked in, his spats shining, his monocle glowing with a shrewd, inquisitive eye behind it, his whole manner genial, self-sufficient, almost dictatorial, and always final. He takes charge so easily, rules so sufficiently, does so essentially well in all circumstances, where he is interested to do so. I have decided, he observed, with that managerial air which always delights me, because my soul is not in the least managerial, that you will come back to England with me. I have my passage arranged for the 22nd. You will come to my house in England. You will stay there for a few days. Then I shall take you to London and put you up at a very good hotel. You will stay there until January 1st and then we shall go to the south of France, Nice, the Riviera, Monte Carlo. From there you will go to Rome, to Paris, where I shall join you, and then sometime in the spring or summer, when you have all your notes, you will return to London or New York and write your impressions, and I will see that they are published. If it can be arranged, I interpolated. It can be arranged, he replied emphatically. I will attend to the financial part and arrange affairs with both an American and an English publisher. Sometimes life is very generous. It walks in and says, here, I want you to do a certain thing, and it proceeds to arrange all your affairs for you. I felt curiously at this time, as though I was on the edge of a great change. When one turns forty and faces one's first transatlantic voyage, it is a more portentous event than when it comes at twenty when I reached the ship, it was already a perfect morning in full glow. The sun was up, a host of gulls were on the wing, 
An air of delicious adventure enveloped the great liner's dock at the foot of 13th Street. Did ever a boy thrill over a ship as I over this monster of the seas? In the first place, even at this early hour, it was crowded with people. From the moment I came on board... I was delighted by the eager, restless movement of the throng. The main deck was like the lobby of one of the great New York hotels at dinner time. There was much calling on the part of a company of dragooned ship stewards to keep moving pleas, and the enthusiasm of farewells and inquiries after this person and that, were delightful to hear. I stopped a while in the writing room and wrote some notes. I went to my state room and found there several telegrams and letters of farewell. Later still, some books which had been delivered at the ship were brought to me. I went back to the dock and mailed my letters, encountered Barfleur finally, and exchanged greetings, and then perforce soon found myself taken in tow by him, for he wanted obviously to instruct me in all the details of this new world upon which I was now entering. At 8.30 came the call to go ashore. At 8.55 I had my first glimpse of a Miss E, a discreet and charming, a bit of English, femininity as one would care to set eyes upon. She was an English actress of some eminence, whom Barfleur was fortunate enough to know. Shortly afterward, a Miss X was introduced to him and to Miss E by a third acquaintance of Miss E's, Mr. G, a very direct, self-satisfied and aggressive type of person. I noticed him strolling about the deck some time before I saw him conversing with Miss E and later for a moment, with Barfleur, I saw these women only for a moment at first, but they impressed me at once as rather attractive examples of the prosperous stage world. It was nine o'clock, the hour of the ship's sailing. I went forward to the prow and watched the sailors on B-deck below me, cleaning up the final details of loading, bolting down the freight hatches, covering the windlass and the like. All the morning I had been particularly impressed with the cloud of gulls fluttering about the ship, but now the harbour, the magnificent wall of lower New York, set like a jewel in the green ring of sea water, took my eye. 
when should I see it again? How soon should I be back? I had undertaken this voyage in pell-mell haste. I had not figured at all on where I was going or what I was going to do. London, yes, to gather the data for the last third of a novel. Rome, assuredly because of all things, I wished to see Rome, the Riviera say, and Monte Carlo, and because the south of France has always appealed to me. Paris, Berlin, possibly. Holland, surely. I stood there till the Mauritania fronted her prow outward to the broad Atlantic. Then I went below and began unpacking, but was not there long before I was called out by Barfleur. Come up with me, he said. We went to the boat deck where the towering red smokestacks were belching forth trailing clouds of smoke. I am quite sure that Barfleur, when he originally made his authoritative command that I come out to England with him, was in no way satisfied that I would. It was a somewhat light venture on his part, but here I was, and now, having let himself in, for this, as he would have phrased it, I could see that he was intensely interested in what Europe would do with me, and possibly in what I would do with Europe. We walked up and down as the boat made her way majestically down the harbour. We parted presently, but shortly he returned to say, Come and meet me, Miss E and Miss X. Miss E is reading your last novel. She likes it. I went down, interested to meet these two, for the actress... The talented, good-looking representative of that peculiarly feminine world of art appeals to me so much. I have always thought that, since I have been able to reason about it, that the stage is almost the only ideal outlet for the artistic temperament of a talented and beautiful woman. Men... Well, I don't care so much for the men of the stage. I acknowledge the distinction of such a temperament as that of David Garrick and Edward Booth. These were such great actors, and by the same token, they were great artists, wonderful artists, but in the main the men of the stage are frail shadows of a much more real thing, the active, constructive man in other lines. On the contrary, the women of the stage are somehow, by right of mere womanhood, the art of looks, form, temperament, mobility, 
peculiarly suited to this realm of show, colour, and make-believe. The stage is fairyland, and they are of it. Women, the women of ambition, aspiration, artistic longings, act anyhow, all the time. They lie like anything. They never show their true colours, or very rarely. If you want to know the truth, you must see through their pretty, petty artistry, back to the actual conditions behind them, which are conditioning and driving them. Very few, if any, have a real grasp on what I call life. They have no understanding of and no love for philosophy. I found that Barfleur, my very able patron, was doing everything that should be done to make the trip comfortable, without show or fuss. Many have this executive or managerial gift. Sometimes I think it is a natural trait of the English, of their superior classes anyhow. They go about colonising so efficiently, industriously. They make fine governors and patrons. I have always been told that English direction and English directors are thorough. Is it true or is it not? At this writing, I do not know. Not only were all our chairs on deck here in a row, but our chairs at table had already been arranged. Four seats at the captain's table. It seems that from previous voyages on this ship, Barfleur knew the captain. He also knew the chairman of the company in England. No doubt he knew the chief steward. Anyhow, he knew the man who sold us our tickets. He knew the head waiter at the Ritz. He had seen him or been served by him. He knew some of the old servitors of the Knickerbocker of old. Wherever he went, I found he was always finding somebody whom he knew. I like to get in tow of such a man as Balfleur and see him plough the seas. I like to see what he thinks is important. In this case, there happens to be a certain intellectual and spiritual compatibility. He likes some of the things that I like. He sympathises with my point of view. Hence, so far at least, we have got along admirably. I speak for the present only. I would not answer for my moods or basic change of emotions at any time. Well, here were the two actresses side by side, both charmingly arrayed, and with them, in a third chair, the short, stout, red-haired Mr. G. I covertly observed the personality of Miss X. Here was someone who, on sight, 
at a glance attracted me far more significantly than ever Miss E could. I cannot tell you why exactly. In a way, Miss E appeared at moments and from certain points of view, delicacy, refinement, sweetness of mood, the more attractive of the two. But Miss X, with her chic face, her dainty little chin, her narrow, lavender-lidded eyes, drew me quite like a magnet. I liked a certain snap and vigour which shot from her eyes, and which I could not feel represented our raw American force. A foreigner will not, I am afraid, understand exactly what I mean, but there is something about the American climate, its soil, rain, winds, race spirit, which produces a raw, direct incisiveness of soul in its children. They are strong, erect, elated, enthusiastic. They look you in the eye, cut you with a glance, say what they mean in 10,000 ways without really saying anything at all. They come upon you fresh like cold water, and they have the luster of a hard, bright jewel, and the fragrance of a rich, red, full-blown rose. Americans are wonderful to me, American men and American women. They are rarely polished or refined. They know little of the subtleties of life, its order and procedures, but oh, the glory of their spirit, the hope of them, the dreams of them, the desires and enthusiasm of them. That is what wins me. They give me the sense of being intensely, enthusiastically, humanly alive. Miss X did not tell me anything about herself save that she was on the stage in some capacity and that she knew a large number of newspaper men, critics, actors, etc. A chorus girl, I thought, and then, by the same token, a lady of extreme unconventionality. I think the average man, however, much he may lie and pretend, takes considerable interest in such women. At the same time, there are large orders and schools of mind, bound by certain variations of temperament and schools of thought, which either flee temptation of this kind, find no temptation in it, or when confronted, resisted vigorously. The accepted theory of marriage and monogamy holds many people absolutely. There are these who would never sin, hold unsanctioned relations, I mean with any women. There are others 
who will always be true to one woman. There are those who are fortunate if they ever win a single woman. We did not talk of these things, but it was early apparent, and she was as wise as the serpent in her knowledge of men. After dinner, we adjourned to the ship's drawing room, and there Miss X fell to playing cards with Buffleur. Afterwards, with Mr. G, who came up and found us, thrusting his company upon us perforce. The man amused me, so typically aggressive, money-centred was he. However, not he so much as Miss X and her mental and social attitude commanded my attention. Her card-playing and her boastful accounts of adventures at Ostend, Treville, Nice, Monte Carlo, indicated plainly the trend of her interests. She was all for the showy life that was not to be found in these places, burning with a desire to glitter, not shine, in that half-world of which she was a smart atom. Her conversation was at once showy, naive, sophisticated and yet unschooled, I could see by Barfleur's attentions to her that aside from her crude Americanisms, which ordinarily would have alienated him, he was interested in her beauty, her taste in dress, her love of a certain continental cafe life, which encompassed a portion of his own interests. Both were looking forward to a fresh season of it. Barfleur with me, Miss X, with someone who was waiting for her in London. I think I have indicated in one or two places in the preceding pages that Barfleur, being an Englishman of the artistic and intellectual classes, with considerable tradition behind him, and all the feeling of the worthwhileness of social order that goes with class training, has a high respect for the conventions, or rather let me say appearances for, though essentially democratic, in spirit and loving America. Its raw force he still clings almost pathetically, I think, to that vast established order which is England. It may be producing a dying condition of race, but still there is something exceedingly fine about it. Now one of the tenets of English social order is that, being a man, you must be a gentleman, very courteous to ladies, very observant of outward forms and appearances, very discreet in your approaches to the wickedness of the world, but nevertheless you may approach and much more, if you are cautious enough. After dinner there was a concert. It was a dreary affair, when it was over, 
I started to go to bed, but it being warm and fresh, I stepped outside. The night was beautiful. There were no fellow passengers on the promenade. All had retired. The sky was magnificent for stars, Orion, the Milky Way, the Big Dipper, the Little Dipper. I saw one star off to my right as I stood at the prow under the bridge, which, owing to the soft, velvety darkness, cast a faint silvery glow on the water, just a trace. Think of it, one lone silvery star over the great dark sea doing this. I stood at the prow and watched the boat speed on, I threw back my head and drank in the salt wind. I looked and listened. England, France, Italy, Switzerland, Germany. These were all coming to me mile by mile. As I stood there, a bell over me struck eight times. Another farther off sounded the same number. Then... A voice at the prow called, all is well, and another aloft on that little eyrie called the crow's nest echoed it, all's well. The second voice was weak and quavering. Something came up in my throat, a quick unbidden lump of emotion. Was it an echo of old journeys and old seas when life was not safe, when Columbus sailed into the unknown? And now this vast ship, 882 feet long, 88 feet beam, with huge pits of engines and furnaces and polite veneered first cabin decks and passengers, 